you, would you like to turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2? And if you don't have a Bible with you, it'd be really handy to have one to follow along, actually. Why don't you stick your hand up and one of our uh, stewards would be happy to bring one to you. And if you're new to... Uh, uh, tonight to Charlotte Chapel. Let me fill you in on what's been happening so far in our series in First Thessalonians. Uh, the Apostle Paul in this book is writing to a church that he planted in Thessalonica. And in chapter 1, he's thanked God for the genuineness of their conversion. He's seen all the vital signs of a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in chapter 2, he turns his attention to remind them of the genuineness of his ministry. And we'll see that as we read through our passage. Uh, but let me tell you first why. Chapter 2 is full of denials. You'll see them as we read it shortly. Denials that, if you do a mirror reading, reveal what people were saying about the Apostle Paul. And it seems that he's been tarred as some kind of phony preacher, uh, flattering and fleecing people for whatever he can get out of them. And then he's run off, never to be seen again, and people are trying to discredit him. It is officially a smear campaign. And Paul, in this chapter, actually in chapters 2 and 3, appeals to the memory banks of the people in Thessalonica, in the church there. He wants them to recall certain things. He wants them to remember what his ministry involved and how that ministry was carried out. And that's what verses 1 to 12 are all about tonight. So let's read it together. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greeds. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Amen. This is God's words. Well, Christian ministry is what this passage is all about. And Christian ministry is in crisis today. It is true, I think, to say that there are many charlatans 
uh, with a weak understanding of their responsibility to the Word of God and an impoverished view of their responsibility to the people of God. We see this in preaching, and you should analyze every single sermon that you hear for this kind of thing. Preaching to many is not so much a setting forth of the, tu the truth pr plainly in a 2 Corinthians 4 cent, but a Jack and Ori, or a TED Talk presentation, Bible light. Uh, I got a great deal on BTTV recently. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, I told my wife that mainly, but it's because I got BT Sports. But anyway, as long with BT Sport, um, you also get a few Christian TV channels, which are fascinating. I don't know how many of you have these channels or how many of you actually watch these channels. But I sat um, flicking on, I can't remember even remember the name of the channel, and mesmerized for about five, 15 minutes from a guy from a church in New York um, walking about the stage, and he was preaching this really motivational message, which was all about seizing the moment. I really did want to seize the moment, but I didn't actually know really what I was supposed to be seizing, in a sense. But when I, after sitting there listening for a few minutes, I came to the point where I thought, actually, Jesus did not have to die in order for what he's saying to be true. Therefore, that cannot be a biblical sermon. Now, maybe it was just a bad one, but my wife was sitting on the sofa just behind me, and she said, he actually isn't saying anything, which was true. Preaching is in crisis. And local church members, I think, face similar challenges. There are many stories out there of pastors who are not just taking their responsibility to the Word of God seriously, but taking their responsibility to the people of God seriously. So some pastors and church leaders, I'm talking about pastors and elders really here in an interchangeable sense. There are people who um, treat ministry like just a profession. Others like wolves seek to mistreat and fleece the sheep in order to line their own pockets. Those propagators of what's called a prosperity gospel. So how do we know and how do you know even right now whether or not someone is a shepherd or a thief. How do you know? How do you know if a pastor is the real deal? You're going to have to find a new one at some point. Um, what are you going to look for in the future, Charlotte Chapel? How will you know what to look for the next time we're needing to appoint some elders? Well, you can look at 1 Thessalonians 2. So if we're asking the question then, what is gospel ministry? We find an answer here. Paul, as I mentioned earlier, is answering his critics. But in doing so, he is showing us a pastor's responsibility, a church leader's responsibility to the Word of God and to the people of God. And he does so providing three, by using three metaphors, uh, three pictures, if you like, of authentic Christian ministry, a steward, a mother, and a father. Let's look at those in turn. Verses 1 to 4 in particular uh, show us what it means for the Christian leader, the pastor, elder, to be a steward. Now, when we think of stewards nowadays, uh, we think of high-vis attendance at concerts or football matches. But in simple terms, a steward is just someone who is entrusted with something and instructed with what to do with it. So if I give you £100 of my money and ask you to put it in my bank account, you at that point on reception of that £100 are 
responsible, being the good Christian people that you are, uh, you are being stewards of that money, making sure you take what belongs not to you but to me, to the bank, as I have instructed. And that's what's true of the Apostle Paul. But of course, he's, he is the steward, the bearer of something that is far more worth, uh, the gospel of God. See with me in verse 4? He says, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Now, I know Paul doesn't actually use the word steward here, but the picture is implicit in what he says. Entrusted with the gospel and approved for this. He's chosen by God, trusted with this gospel, and entrusted with the responsibility or tasked with delivering it. Now, what is that gospel? You might be here tonight and you're not a Christian. It's wonderful to have you here. You're welcome anytime in church. I don't think this is just for Christians to come. Uh, we're glad you're here. The gospel is the thing. If you keep coming week after week that you'll hear people like me talking about again and again and again. It is the center point and the focus of everything. And it's all about God. The fact that he lives. Uh, he moves. He is at work in us. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. And he has made himself known. It's all, this gospel is all about how people like us, human beings, have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard that he's met, he set for us. And that has left us in a terrible predicament under his judgment. But this gospel is also the good news that he has done something about that problem in sending his son, the Lord Jesus, into this world to die for our sins, to reconcile us to God, so that we who turn away from our sin and turn to him. Believing in him and in his cross, we find salvation in his name. We talk about that gospel all the time and would love to explain it in a fuller way if you would let us do that. This is the gospel that has been entrusted to him. In a sense, it can be offered in a nutshell, Christ died for our sins, or it can be the whole content of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. This is what Paul has been entrusted with and tasked with passing on. And when he's talking about passing it on, in this passage, I don't think you can get away from the fact that he's talking about preaching and teaching. Look at the words that Paul uses to describe his ministry among the Thessalonians. He uses words like telling in verse 2, appealing, verse 3, speaking, verse 4, sharing, verse 8. Preaching is the word, the Greek word that's used uh, for what they hear in verse 9 and 13, heralding the gospel. That is the word of God. And as Paul appeals to the memory banks of the Thessalonians, he's saying, remember what I did when I was with you? This thing that I was tasked to do? Did I do it faithfully? Oh, he did. Paul was entrusted with someone to pass on. He was not allowed to change it or do anything else with it. And neither are we. The Mona Lisa has only been exhibited outside of Paris uh, twice in the last 100 years, once in Washington, um, the other time in Tokyo. Can you imagine what would have happened if you had the responsibility of being the carrier, of, of transporting the Mona Lisa to one of these two uh, exhibitions? There's great responsibility with that. Now imagine you're the DPD guy, okay? And you decided that the Mona Lisa in transit just lacked a little bit of artistic merit. Uh, maybe you decided that you would whip out a brush and update Lisa's dress with, dress with a nice pink number, cheered it up with a proper smile, 
Uh, what if you believed that blondes really did have more fun and therefore you painted her hair color accordingly? What do you think the curators would say on reception of that Mona Lisa, the adapted version? The bosses would be incensed. The bosses at the Louvre would certainly be raging. And it's the same in Christian ministry. An adjusted gospel is no gospel at all. It will not stir the same love for God and concern about sin that it's meant to. And God reserves, as he says in other parts of the New Testament, some of his harsh judgment for those who are teachers. Jai Packer says, Christian leaders are stewards entrusted with this message and called to deliver this message, not as another of man's bright ideas needing to be beautified with the cosmetics and high heels of fashionable learning or attractive insight, but as it is in its purity, a word from God spoken in Christ. That's what it means to be a steward. That's what gospel ministry looks like. Because and only one thing matters to a steward, if he has integrity. It's as Paul says here, it's pleasing the master. And this is Paul's defense against the smear campaigners. They say, he's a people pleaser, but he replies, I'm not, I'm a God pleaser. Look at me, verse four again. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Paul was living for one accolade only one well done and it wasn't theirs it was Christ's he wasn't flattering people for personal gain as he's been accused of here he's not spouting error he's not he's not being a trickster he's not pretending to be something he's not he's not putting on a mask to cover up greed he's carrying out this task of telling speaking and preaching this gospel faithfully because pleasing God was all that mattered to him when God's glory is your primary concern and his accolade is all that counts, money and praise mean nothing to you. Suffering and outrageous mistreatment, the kind that Paul experienced in verses one and two, are bearable for you because of what they're achieving. A glory that far outweighs them all. When God's glory is your primary concern and his accolade is all that counts, courage, and faithfulness to him in the presentation and preaching of the gospel is what you will do even if the people are putting their fingers in their ears and saying, we've got itchy ears for something different. Now this is very important for church leaders today. And it's very important for local churches today because people pleasers make the worst kind of pastors and elders. People pleasers don't preach the whole counsel of God. They say more about the things that people want to hear rather than the things that God, God's word says that we need to hear. Now, that would be error. You know, if Paul was doing that, then the accusation of him being a manipulator would be true. And there are different kinds of people pleasers, really, in Christian leadership. There are those who are like a power-hungry people pleaser, the, the, the person they seek to please, in other words, is themselves. They, the self-satisfying kind for whom ministry is just an ego trip. So Sundays are just an occasion for performing. Personal gain is what they're after, really, mostly in the form of reputation, but some um, without shame. 
are looking for personal gain in the form of cash. But the other kind of is the, ship, the shape-shifting people-pleaser, whose ministry and teaching is just conditioned by the wants and preferences of members. But stewardship in gospel ministry involves faithfulness to God and to the task. I remember at my induction to ministry in St. Andrews, um, that my, my pastor mentor from my old church in Dundee looked the congregation in the eye and said, listen, everyone, uh, Liam Garvey will be your servant, but you will never be his master. And that stuck with me. How true. We are responsible above all to Christ, the senior pastor, the chief shepherd, and pleasing him is what counts. So this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Uh, gospel ministry, genuine, authentic gospel ministry that can be trusted by people in local churches like the Thessalonians involves, first of all, being a steward. But secondly, it involves being like a mother. This is what we see in verses 5 to 9. In verses 5 to 9, it sounds a bit like Paul has been accused of manipulating the Thessalonians, but he says, hold on, we're not like blokes flirting with you to have our wicked way. We're not like actors pretending to care. We were like mums. No, nursing mums, we seriously loved you. That's what he's saying. Now, that's, that's not a common thing. Let me tell you to see that on the CVs of pastors. Strengths, I am like a mother to people. You know, you, you just don't often see that. But it's a wonderful thing to see here. Now, two of the main things that stand out here in verses 5 to 9 are that Paul loved them affectionately and served them sacrificially. Isn't that what mums do? Look with me, verse 7 in particular. It says, we were like... Young children among you. Now, the word for young children in there, as you'll see in the footnote, is actually the Greek word for gentle. So we were gentle among you. How gentle? Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So it's not just about delivering the message. It's not just about our responsibility to the Word of God and being faithful to that. It's about our responsibility to the people of God and loving them deeply. Loving affection and sacrificial service define, for me, what motherhood is really like. I mean, mums give up so much to care for their children. I mean, in pregnancy, they give up their center of gravity, and then they give up their nutrients. The things that they consume go to the baby. That's sacrifice right there. I'm not sure they've got much to say about it or do about it. But, but then when the newborn arrives, mums, well, they sacrifice their sleep. And they sacrifice their calendars. All the pregnant women are like, oh, this is a great message to hear tonight. But it's true, everything revolves around the baby. There's a massive shift takes place in life. And these nursing mums share not just part of their life, but all of their life with these little bundles of joy. And so much is sacrificed, but at the same time, so much affection is shown. I mean, for me, it's just superhuman. I mean, I love, I love seeing my wife look after our kids. 
Even as babies when they were up through the night, surely it takes a strange kind of love to be woken up for the fifth time in the night and yet have a little smile on your face as you look down at this little baby. And it's like, oh, it's a critter, you know. We need our sleep, science tells us. But no, they look with affection. They look with absolute devotion. Their life is completely caught up with this little baby. And Paul says in the same way that a nursing mom loves her baby, we loved you. It's brilliant. We loved you. Seeing you, Thessalonians, born again, taking your first solids, taking your baby steps, seeing how you've grown, seeing how God has been at work in you, even though it's cost us It's cost us our whole lives. We work night and day in order to do this for you, to serve you and teach you, to see you gobble up the truth of Christ's death and resurrection and to start to live out what the Christian life looks like. It's a joy. That's what an elder looks like. Your elders should look like nursing mums. Now, caring for the flock then involves sacrifice. Sacrificial love calls on pastors, church leaders to lay down their lives for the people that Christ laid down his life to save, right? And if you are a fake and only in it for the reputation, the power, the status, whatever, the sheep will be an inconvenience. And if you're looking for genuine elders and pastors, then... Look to those who find such joy and delight in sharing their lives with the church family already. That's their delight. Whether caring for the broken, rejoicing with the happy, rebuking the wanderer, this is a vocation. It's not a job. And it takes more than just time in the day and a qualification on the wall. It takes love. That's what Paul's saying. Because caring for the flock is not just a role to undertake, but a delight in the undertaking. So brothers and sisters, every member of the church has different expectations of what this love looks like, of course. And I don't know, I've wrestled with this. In, In St. Andrew's Baptist Church, where I was before, we had a church of 250 people. It was hard to, how do you show love to that many people? Then you come to a church with as many people as we have in Charlotte Chapel, and you think, well, how? How can we fulfill this responsibility? This is, this is tough, right? This isn't easy. And it's a funny thing, you know, it's, it's difficult to try and meet people's expectations and some people will be disappointed. In fact, the pastor is the only job I know in which the people who don't like you get mad because you don't visit them. That doesn't really make sense to me. But I heard one pastor, former pastor of this church, actually sit down with me once and tell me, listen, the day you stop preaching the gospel is the day you stop loving your church. The day you stop praying for people is the day when they should sack you. And that's true in itself. The day we stop practicing church discipline, the day when we don't 
care much about the life that you're living and the danger you're putting yourself in is the day we've stopped loving you. So a steward and a mother, the first two pictures for us of genuine gospel ministry and the third one, a father. We see this in verses 10 to 12. So gospel ministry not only involves loving sacrifice, but exemplary living and encouragement. That's what fathers do in Paul's view. That's why he uses this illustration. So it's not that they love their children less than mums. I love my kids with all my heart. And it's not that mums don't encourage and exhort and urge forward. They certainly do. But dads, kids need their dads. And dads are supposed to be the walking, talking example to emulate. Always coming alongside their kids to urge them on and I think that's why for Paul, the image of a father provides a helpful picture of pastoral ministry. So pastors must provide an example of gospel living to emulate. Uh, isn't that what verse, uh, verse 10 says? You are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. And that is an incredible statement for him to make. In the face of those who questioned his character and are trying to undermine his credibility with this smear campaign, campaign in, in response to the Thessalonian believers, he says, think about it, remember what I was like was with you. And he claims to have the very characteristics that in the Bible most often describe God. Holy, righteous, and blameless. Now that is a tall order, but that's what he's doing. That's what he says Genuine gospel ministry look like, looks like. It's a pursuit of holiness. There's, it's exercised with integrity and righteousness. Not perfect. Nobody can do that, bar Jesus. But in speech, in life, in love, and faith, and purity, elders are supposed to live in such a way that they set an example. They are to be above reproach. Well, First Timothy and Titus have more to say about that. Uh, the lives of those in gospel ministry must confirm and not contradict their words. But of course, what Paul talks about here in relation to fatherhood as an example, it's, it's more than just an example to emulate. Pastors must urge God's people on in their faith. Now, Paul would have been accused of all sorts of things, but he says in verse 11, you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. And in the same way that a dad wants to see his children grow to make wise choices, not to drift or become complacent in life, but to remember what's important, Paul says that's what pastors, those who are genuine gospel workers will do. And as a dad, I mean, let me tell you, it takes repeated instruction, repeated urging, repeated encouragement to do these things. I mean, if only you had to tell a child once to not batter his siblings, you know, that would be great. If only you had to tell a child once not to climb up on the kitchen worktop, which happened only about 30 minutes before I left for church tonight. You know, these, if only we could, if only they understood every time, but that's not the way it is, and that's okay. 
the regularity of a pastor getting alongside, urging, and encouraging. It's an important aspect of ministry that Paul wants to draw out. And it's necessary. You can't ignore this aspect of pastoral ministry. I mean, what happens to people who are discouraged and who are not comforted and who are not urged on? Well, many will become disillusioned with their faith, probably with God. Uh, Some might continue on in the path that they're on and unwarned go further into sin. These are necessary tasks. That's why Paul says of the Thessalonians that he has encouraged them, come alongside them to help them find their way. Pastors are called to do the same. He's comforted them, consoling them when life is hard and helping them to keep going through the trials. That's why he's urging them, even when they need a a kick. A dad knows that sometimes a change of tone is needed. There's a difference between a happy son and son. And faithful pastors will do the same with God's children. That's what Paul is communicating. And as a father in the faith, Paul would keep on reminding them of who they were in Christ and what they ought to be living for because they had been rescued from an old life. They had turned away, as we saw in chapter 1, from this life of idolatry and brought into newness of life, filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, filled with purpose for their life ahead. And his responsibility was to love them deeply and urge them on as if they were his own children, to love them like a mother, to educate them and urge them on like a father, to bring them up gently but firmly in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and in doing so, provides a picture or an ideal for those in or pursuing pastoral ministry, for those who desire the office of elder, And indeed sets an example for each and every one of us, really, who are involved in small group leadership of some kind. Whether you're leading a table at Time Out or at Yak. If you're a member of this church, if you're a member of those small groups with your group group leaders and so on, don't you want someone to minister to you in this threefold way? I do. It's essential. It's what God has chosen to give us to help us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to help us become more and more like him. So in summary, what is gospel ministry? It's this twofold commitment to the word of God and the people of God. And Paul's ministry provides this helpful pattern for our own ministry. As pastors and elders in this church, brothers, I speak to you, We must be faithful as stewards in passing the gospel on, loving as mothers in caring for this church family, and encouraging as fathers in urging all to grow. But before I close, I want to ask the question, uh, who's going to do it next? We live in a nation where the need for gospel workers like this 
is pretty serious. The number of people entering into gospel ministry in the sense of pastoral ministry or in the wider sense of gospel ministry, it's scarce. Or who will take up this vocation, preaching the gospel of God and loving the people of God? Martin Smith will be inducted on Saturday at Hoyk. Lord willing, Ross and Adam, Matt and Chris will follow. Who's next? If you're thinking about gospel ministry of any type, you should speak to the elders. You should speak to me or Paul. We would love to talk to you about it. There are too few, and the need is too great. Let's pray together.